And I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We're going to attempt to do something that we haven't done yet in this series, and that is make it through an entire chapter in one morning. So uh, Romans chapter 7. You have notes also in your outline, uh, outline in your worship folder, so I um, invite you to take that out and follow along. What a joyous week it was last week uh, together for Easter, wasn't it? Um, and if you happen to have been here last week and you're back this week or this is your first time here or one of your first times here, you're welcome as our guests. We're glad that you're here this morning. Um, it was a few years ago that Kathy and I were at Point Loma Nazarene for um, uh, graduation and sitting about probably 20 feet from us, I thought I noticed uh, the tennis player Andre Agassi. And um, found out later that that was indeed him, that uh, he had paid for one of his team's daughters to go to Point Loma, and he wanted to come and see her graduate. Um, I thought that was a pretty cool thing of of him to do. Uh, When Andre Agassi's memoirs came out in 2009, uh, the key revelation of the book was this that Andre Agassi, a former number one ranked tennis player, uh, winner of eight Grand Slams, and uh, one of the uh, winner of millions of dollars, hated tennis. Uh, Here's what he writes. Listen to this. I hate tennis. I hate it with a dark, secret passion, and I always have. I hate tennis. I hate it with all my heart. And still I keep playing. I keep hitting all morning and all afternoon because I have no choice. No matter how much I want to stop, I don't. I keep begging myself to stop. And still I keep playing. And this gap, this contradiction between what I want to do and what I actually do It feels like the core of my life. Who knew? You know, it sounds a little bit like what we're going to be looking at today in Romans chapter 7. In many ways, I think Agassiz's struggle with tennis is like our struggle with sin. Uh, We hate it, but we do it anyway. Uh, Augustine wrote this. He said, Romans 7 reveals the desperate condition of fallen humanity, showing how our sinful nature constantly wars against our desire to live a holy life. It, It underscores the need for God's grace and redemption in our lives. So Romans 7 has a lot of wisdom Uh, for us in our relationship with the law. When we say the law, we're talking about uh, the Old Testament. They could be summed up in in the Ten Commandments. Uh, But in all the law, the Pentateuch, really all of that. Uh, But that's what the law is when he's referring to the law. But you have this on your outline. Every Christian can know a greater freedom in Christ if we make the wisdom of this chapter a part of our life. Um, freedom is not the absence of temptation. 
Uh, freedom is the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us as believers to say no to temptation. Uh, chapter 7 of Romans seems to be like a self-portrait of the Apostle Paul that he's painting of, him, of himself, uh, where he uses the first person singular pronoun I nearly 30 times. Near the end of, of his verbal self-portrait, uh, he, he exclaims, wretched man that I am, in verse 24. So let's take a look at the passage. Um, and I, we're going to read it kind of as we go through because it's, it's pretty long. So I think that's going to be the best way for us to work through it. So the first truth that we need to understand is that the law, again, meaning the, the law of God summed up, summed up in the Ten Commandments, um, but the law in general has no power over us. That's number one. So Paul chooses the analogy of marriage to describe how we relate to the law. Uh, and and we're, so we're going to read the passage as we go through it. So starting at verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So we'll stop there for now. So there are three parts to this example. There's the husband, there's the wife, and there's the law. Uh, and <clears throat> the law tells them how to act. So look who dies. The, the law doesn't die. And, and so the law is very much alive and, and fulfilling its purpose in God's plan of redemption. We'll talk about what that is. But it's the believer who dies. And, and this is on your outline. And with him dies his obligation to stay married to sin. Now, this becomes clear in the next few verses. So, verse 4 explains the relationship between the law that, that still exists, but it's a, it's a very different relationship now that someone has come to faith in Christ. So, verse 4. So, my dear brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that he might bear fruit for God. So as we are married to Christ, as we become a Christian, we, uh, we have Christ in us, the law <clears throat> has now no claim on us. So Paul describes our new freedom in the next couple of verses, verses five and six. So verse five, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. So Paul calls our rebellious nature the flesh. Um, Jesus had referred to our flesh in Matthew 26 as being weak. Uh, but no one before Paul called it sinful or evil. But that's what Paul does here. He calls the flesh sinful and evil. Paul uses this term flesh to represent us before we came 
to faith in Christ. So the world system is is a warped version of God's original desires. Uh, The world system continually opposes God's will. You turn on the news, you'll see it. It's everywhere. And this is what Paul described back in Romans chapter 1. Seems like forever ago that we did Romans chapter 1, but a few months ago. Um, So now verse 6 in chapter 7. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we now have as Christians a new nature, a new nature with the Holy Spirit living in us that that isn't opposed to the law. But Paul calls this new nature spirit with a capital S because we have the Holy Spirit living in us to make us a new creation. So now instead of trying to live in harmony with the law by studying it and following every letter of the law, which we couldn't do anyway, uh, we allow the Spirit of God to live through us. And we're going to be looking at that in more detail starting next week as we get into chapter 8, which is a, such a great chapter. So now instead of despair and bondage, there's joy and freedom in Christ. Instead of being under the law, now we have, uh, we're under the Spirit. There's joy in the Spirit. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Now we no longer belong to the law, but we belong to Christ. And this is very foundational for who we are as Christians. The second part of wisdom is uh, our understanding that, and this is number two on the outline, that the law is good in that it reveals to us God's righteous demands. So the first analogy was hypothetical about marriage. Uh, Now Paul talks about himself. So he anticipates uh, the objection in verse 7, and then he deals with it directly. So verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. You know, one of the things that's always helpful in understanding a verse and something that we have the privilege in English of being able to look at is so many different translations and paraphrases of the New Testament. Um, I want to read this same verse, verse 7, in the Living Bible, and I I think it it makes it very clear. So follow along in your Bible again in verse 7 as I read it in the Living Bible. Well then, am I suggesting that these laws of God are evil? Of course not. No, the law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known the sin in my heart, the evil desires that are hidden there, If the law had not said, you must not have evil desires in your heart. So, verse 8, we'll continue. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. 
So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then, verse 13, become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So we'll stop there again. It's when we understand the bad news of sin that we've talked about a lot as we've gone through Romans uh, that we found that it's utterly sinful before God. That's what makes the good news so incredibly good. Uh, We have a a small group on Wednesdays and as we discussed uh, the sermon from uh, the following week, um, from last week, I was uh, reminded that the good news up against the bad news of our sin is like a jeweler who is showing a beautiful diamond and what do they put it on when they show it to you? They put it on top of black velvet Uh, Because, and and think of it in terms of our salvation, it makes the gift of salvation all the more stunning when we see the blackness of our sin. That's what makes the good news so good. The law reveals the utter pervasiveness of sin. And to us believers, this is a grace to be able to see that we're sinful, that we need God and we need his grace. And that's a gift. And so God gave the law for two reasons. You've got this on your outline. The law, number one, exposes sins. God wants us to see our sin for what it is, uh, to turn from our sin and to come to faith in him. Uh, And and then the next thing is the law exposes our sinfulness. The law shows us how rebellious we are. Uh, The law shows us our inability to help ourselves. We can't do this on our own. The law shows us our great need for God to change our hearts because we can't do it by ourselves. I'll tell you, maybe a modern day example of this to clarify what Paul's saying here is, you know, not very long ago, uh, people would get symptoms and then they would go to see their doctor and their doctor would say, I'm sorry, you have cancer and there's nothing we can do. It's so advanced. Uh, And that happened until somebody invented the MRI uh, machine, a magnetic resonance imaging machine, an amazing machine that quickly and accurately probes uh, what's inside of us. And it will give doctors a picture. And and if they've got the the resources and the knowledge, they can look at that and they can can see uh, cancer early on. And... Uh, before there really are any symptoms. That's why an MRI can be good. It leads to a cancer diagnosis sometimes. And the patient, uh, before the patient, obviously, before they knew they had it. And they don't blame the machine for having cancer. If anything, that patient should be thankful that the problem they had is shown by the MRI. And in essence, what Paul is saying is, "I, I I did not know that I was dying of this disease of sin until the law revealed my terminal condition. And so by pointing out the problem, the the law demonstrated that he was living under a a death sentence. So the law is like God's MRI machine for our souls. It shows us what's really there. It exposes in our lives the the cancer of sin and, and confronts us with the prognosis. 
And the disease of sin is, is, as we all know, deadly if it's not treated. But it is, it is completely curable, very treatable. Does the law cause death? Well, no more than an MRI machine causes cancer. And so that leads us to the third truth, number three on the outline, and that is when we try on our own to live a life that's pleasing to God, we will fail every time. Along with Augustine and Martin Luther and John Calvin and most other commentators, I believe that this chapter is describing a Christian's struggle with sin. Uh, A.W. Tozer, another godly man, a commentator, a pastor, uh, writes this, Romans 7 is a profound exploration of the human condition, underscoring the reality of our struggle with sin and the ongoing need for God's grace and redemption. It points us to the hope and victory we have in Christ who alone can deliver us from the power of sin. So Paul here not only continues to write in the first person singular, but also in the present tense. So he's saying, this is what I'm struggling with right now. It's also helpful to remember that uh, chapters seven and eight of Romans are really going on at the same time. Uh, Chapter eight is the chapter of victory. But this is not something that happens after chapter seven, but at the same time, as chapter seven. We can go through both of them at the same time. So Paul describes himself as one who loves the law of God and he longs to please God. I think that that reflects us. We love God's word. We we long uh, to please God. But in trying to do so, sometimes it's in his own strength. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul speaks with this vulnerability in, in chapter 7 that I think is, is to be commended, um, at, at least that he's trying to do this in his own strength and explain that to us. So Romans 7 is autobiographical to Paul, it's, it, but it's also our experience. It's the experience of every Christian that I know. Anyone who has seriously followed Christ has known something of this reality, of the, the reality of this struggle. And Paul's basically already said that the flesh is the opposite of the spirit. And now he continues to to explain how that continues to impact the believer throughout his life, throughout our lives. Before someone believes, the, the, the flesh serves sin and feels the condemnation of sin, of the law. Um, once someone has received grace through faith, and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the life of a believer, the, the, the internal with str- struggle with sin begins. And there's this battle that's going on. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Doesn't that sound like Andre Agassi? Every Christian receives a new nature when he believes in Jesus. But it's like the flesh, our old nature has a mind of its own. 
it's like a, a dragon that will just raise its head out of nowhere and, 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 and tempt us. And this is on your outline. While the new nature wants nothing more than to act like Jesus acts, the old human nature wants, to, wants life to continue as it was. That's our old human nature. This is what, uh, what you used to do. Now, you can keep doing it. Keep on doing it. That's what, that's what the voice we hear uh, from our flesh. And this next part of Romans 7 is a description of the battle, starting in verse 17. As it is, it is no longer my, I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not uh, do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You know, there's a, a, a well-known devotional book uh, by a, an author who is a French monk. His name was Thomas Akempis. And he wrote a, a devotional book called The Imitation of Christ. Out of curiosity, show of hands, how many of you have heard of that, uh, that book? Well, lots of hands. Um, I won't ask if you've all read it. I hope you have. Uh, but if you haven't, it's a, it's a very good devotional book. If you have never heard of it, um, I, yeah, it's a great devotional. So he says really a commentary on this passage, but he, he writes it as a prayer. And so I'm going to read his commentary, but think about this being a prayer for, for you in your struggle with sin. He, he says this, I desire to enjoy deep fellowship with you in my heart of hearts, O Lord. But it's like it's beyond me. I long to hold tightly to heavenly things, but passions from my old life keep coming to mind and depress me. Lord, in my mind, I desire to be above all that the world offers me, but in spite of trying, these sinful thoughts keep coming to mind. It's like a war within me. As I pray and meditate deeply on your word, my flesh keeps battling against me. I think that's all of us. Thomas Akempis is writing for all of us. And how often we've tried with all of our might to follow Christ and we've been pulled down by our flesh and, and we fail. So let's pick it up at verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? You know, I've heard experts say that um, cold turkey withdrawal from heroin addiction is one of the most excruciating ordeals that a person can go through. Listen to this description by one expert. Bone and muscle pain, insomnia, major gut issues, 
and shock-like symptoms usually peak two or three days after the last dose and usually take more than a week to subside. The physical anguish would be enough without the psychological trauma the addict suffers. Yet even after enduring the torment of withdrawal and moving beyond physical dependence upon the drug, many return to using. The problems that encouraged the addict to escape into heroin are still present. And the craving for relief becomes too much to bear alone. And the expert continues, anyone who has experienced physical dependence upon anything will affirm that the craving is never far away. Even chronic smokers who have kicked the habit for years tell me that even decades later, they sometimes long to have a smoke. That's why drug treatment experts are unanimous in their opinion. Treating the body to overcome physical dependence is only a beginning. The key to lifelong sobriety lies in treating the mind, which is itself a lifelong endeavor. The addict is never really cured. The addiction will always be a part of his or her life. However, addicts can remain in recovery forever. So all of us are chronically addicted to sin. It's like we meet in an AA-type meeting every week and we could all stand up and say, Hello, my name is Kenny Dodd. I am a sinner. We all sin. Long after we're saved, our bodies will crave the short-term pleasures that, that we knew before we came to faith in Christ. And they also, those same ones that cause us long-term anguish. And the pull to indulge the craving for sin will always be a part of who we are while we are on this earth. At least until we're freed from the body of this death. And as for the present, what does Paul say? Verse 24, wretched man that I am. And this happens to every Christian. Look at Paul. One commentator said Paul has more theology and passion in his little finger than most of us have in our entire lives. And he struggled with this. We could say he was maybe the strongest Christian of all and this disheartened him. That's what we're reading in, in Romans 7. We will never come to perfection in this life, but that's our hope. Our hope is that when we are in heaven in the presence of Jesus, we will be like him. That's what, what the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3. He says this, and man, this is so awesome. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not shown us what we will be uh, like when, what we will be like when Christ appears. But we know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Man, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus just decided to return right now? That would be so cool. Let's, we could all go up together and be with the Lord, uh, not have to die in this. Oh man, that would, 
but what we will be in that verse is talking about we will have glorified bodies. We will not get sick anymore. We will not grow old. Can I hear an amen to that? Yeah. We will not grow old. We will not die. We will, we will be completely without sin. No one like that has ever been on earth before except Jesus. But we will be like him. One author said this about heaven. Christians will be morally without sin, intellectually without falsehood or error, physically without weakness or imperfections, and filled continually with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's what we have to look forward to. And then this final truth that we need to understand from Romans 7, number four, is our failure to obey in our own power prepares us for God's grace. Look at verse 24. Again, Paul writes, what a wretched man I am. And the idea of wretched is a miserable, distressed condition. Here's what a picture of, of wretched means. Imagine a boxer who's fighting for the world championship. And he has just, as much as he's trained, as much as he's worked out, as much as he's prepared for this fight, he has been totally beat down. Uh, and, and, and his dreams of, of wearing that championship belt, uh, just experiencing all the glory just down the drain. And he's standing there and he's exhausted and he's demoralized and he's barely able to see through the swelling in his eyes. Barely able to breathe, probably because he has a couple fractured ribs. And now after this devastating defeat, he's lasted all 15 rounds, but he just has to, he has to take his place in the middle of the ring and to hear his defeat announced to the crowd. It's like rubbing salt into his wound. That's a terrible thing, but that's what, that's what it means, this idea of wretched. And, and at this point, we can say that Paul in spite of all of this, is in a good place here in verse 24. Because why? Because he realizes his helplessness. And that's what God wants all of us to realize, is that we're helpless to do it. We can't do it on our own. But now he's in a position to receive God's help. And that's exactly the place God wants us to be in, where we know we can't do it on our own and we receive his help. As long as we think we can do it, we're going to be in Romans 7. We're not going to be able to experience what the joy of Romans 8 is. But if we want to move to Romans 8, then we realize he, we can't do it on our own. It's the Holy Spirit living in us that produces in us the ability to say no, the ability to sin, the ability to have the freedom that we have and the joy we have in Christ. And Paul represents all of us who seek to truly follow Jesus. So how did Paul handle coming to the end of himself? He handled it beautifully. And notice what he does here. He does not say, what must I do? Because that's not grace, that's works. He doesn't say that. He says, who will rescue me? And the answer is Jesus. The, he, look at the end of verse 24 again. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks, and you can underline this first phrase of verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind 
am a slave uh, to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And so as Paul says this, he anticipates something that we all know very well, and that is that the victory of the power comes through the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that's what we're going to look at in chapter 8. And by the way, let me just say this. When we come to chapter, in studying the book of Romans, I don't know if there's any book more important in the New Testament for under, as a key to unlock understanding all the New Testament. And I don't know if there's a key chapter in the book of Romans to understanding Romans more than chapter 8. And so as we get into chapter 8, I want to challenge you all to memorize all of chapter 8 of Romans. Uh, we did that before. I didn't think I was a little skeptical on how many people would take me up on that. There were like 40 people who memorized it when we did this years ago. So we need another 40 to step up and memorize it. You know what? If you just did a verse a week, it's 39 verses in Romans 8. It's 37 weeks left in the year. Uh, you almost get done by the end of the year. Uh, into January of next year. One verse a week. Start with Romans 8.1. That's part of the Romans road. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great verse to memorize. Uh, Ray Stedman wrote this, and it's on your outline. He said, there are teachers who teach that this passage in Romans 7 is something a Christian goes through but once. Then he gets out of it and moves into Romans 8, never to return to Romans 7 again. Nothing could be further from the truth. Even as mighty a man as Paul went through it again and again. This is a description of what every believer will go through many times in his experience. Because sin has the power to deceive and to cause us to trust in ourselves even when we are not aware of what we're, that we're doing so. The law is what will expose that evil force and drive us to the place of wretchedness that we might then, in devotion of spirit, cry out, Lord Jesus, it is your problem. You take it. So once a believer has died to sin, once a believer is in Christ, his or her relationship with the law and obeying the law is, is forever changed. God gave us the law to confront our sin. Paul says in, in Galatians, the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. And so once that happens, the law has served its purpose. And if we learn anything from what Paul told us about himself in Romans 7, it's that self-improvement done in the energy of the flesh doesn't work. We're not saved by grace, and then we become like Jesus on our own power. Paul writes this to the Colossians, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did we receive Christ as Lord? It's God's gift from start to finish. How do we walk in him? In the same way. It's God's gift from start to finish. So we're not saved by grace and then sanctified by our own efforts. The, the point of Paul's self-portrait in Romans 7 is to show us that only God can purify a soul. So there's still a question of what's, what's the role we play? Is there any role we play in our duty now that we have been saved by grace? Well, I, I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. This is another autobiographical part of, of Philippians where Paul talks about uh, his own 
desire. It's a prayer. It's a prayer that I've prayed for myself. It's a prayer that I've prayed for us as a church, for you, for, for all of us. And I want you to read it, Look, follow along in Philippians 3, verse 10, as I read it from the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible amplifies it. It makes it so that we're reading what they, in the first century, were reading what they felt behind it in the Greek. And so, follow along. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. And that I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers, and that I may so share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death in the hope. So what's our goal? Our primary, it's on your outline, our primary purpose is to know Jesus Christ personally with ever-deepening intimacy. That's our goal. So if we read scripture, if we pray, if we meditate, if we journal, if we fast, whatever we do, let's do it for the sole purpose of knowing the mind of God. If we worship, if we serve, if we spend time with other believers, let us learn through his transforming work in others about how God can transform our lives. And if we feed the poor or we help the weak or we comfort the lonely or we proclaim the gospel to a broken world, let us do that firsthand and give us the firsthand knowledge of of the character of Jesus. We're to let every trial and every victory Bring us closer to understanding Jesus and his nature, understanding his purposes. So you have this on the outline. The spiritual disciplines are not a means to holiness. They are a means to knowing Jesus. And as we come to know him more intimately, the Holy Spirit will do what only he can do, make us more like Jesus. And so just like the moon has no light on its own, it just reflects the the light of the sun, so we too will be a light shining forth God's radiance as we grow close to Jesus or reflect him to the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this worthiest of all pursuits to know you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see how we can gaze on your beauty all the time. Help us to find you beautiful just in who you are for us. When we get our eyes off of you, Lord, help us just to hunger and thirst more for your power and your righteousness in every part of our lives. We want to seek your face alone more than anything else. Thank you for making Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thank you that we can come with confidence before you and ask for this one thing. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, may our dependably steady and warmly personal God develop maturity other as well as Jesus gets along with us all then we'll be a choir not our voices only but our very lives singing in harmony with uh, in a stunning anthem to God and our father the master uh, the father of our master Jesus Christ amen God bless you have a great day and memorize Romans 8